Seeds today. We'll get started. It's good to see everyone here. I think fall is here in earnest now when you see snowflakes, right? So let's uh, begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that we can look at the book of Revelation and look at the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem that you're going to create for us. And I do pray, Lord, as we study these things, that you would implant these promises in our hearts so that we would persevere during this age, that we'd look forward to the kingdom to come, and that we'd forsake sin that so easily entangles us here and now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to remind you where we left off a couple weeks ago. Thank you, Bob, too, for setting me up. Last week, we had left off with God tabernacling with men, and we're talking about the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. And one of the things that I think is important about the new creation is we see that the problem of sin and separation that occurred in the garden, remember Adam and Eve when they sinned, they're what? They're cast out from God's presence. They can no longer tabernacle with God. Well, that is all rectified in the new creation. And we saw here on this last slide, for example, that in this new creation, there's going to be no more tears or death for the people of God. Do you see that? But I reminded you, when we looked at what happens to those who indwell Babylon and those who live for the world, they are given mourning. So there's a big contrast. Those who have a part in the new Jerusalem, there's going to be no more tears. Those who made their home Babylon, there's going to be plenty of tears. The things of the world and the fleeting pleasures of sin are passing away. And that's a good message, I think, that we are to take away from these verses. Now, As we continue, we saw last time that God is the only promise keeper. And I mentioned that for the first time, we see God explicitly speaking from his throne room. Let's just remind ourselves where we left off. Revelation 21, verses 5 through 6. John said, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Now, again, God here is explicitly speaking. We know that because notice the one who's speaking, the words are faithful and true. Now, notice what he says, though, before that. He says, behold, I'm making all things new. One of the great promises in the Bible is not that somehow we escape into nothingness as the Buddhists teach or somehow we escape into becoming one with the universe, into kind of a a mindlessness. But instead, there's going to be a renewal of all things for the people of God. There's a renewal of our body. There's a renewal of the heavens, the earth, and even Jerusalem. And so this renewal is something that the prophets spoke of, and it's something that were on the lips of Jesus and the apostles. In fact, I've got a couple of verses. LaVon, you had one of them. And I want everyone to turn your Bibles to it. It's Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. Matthew 19, verse 28. I just want you to see that Jesus also talks about the regeneration of all things. So Matthew 19, 28, if you turn your Bibles there, Levon is going to read that passage for us. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, That in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. 
Wow. Thanks a lot. Notice that term regeneration, polygynesia. It's a long one in Greek. It really means the restoration of the world. So Jesus is talking about what we're actually now reading about in Revelation, that there really is going to be all things made new. Um, We also see it in the sermon that Peter gave in Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. Uh, turn your, um, I'm sorry, Jim had that, but turn your Bibles if you get a chance to Acts 3, 19 through 21. I want you to see that this is part of the apostolic message that one day in the future when the Lord returns, as a result, all things are going to be restored. Acts three nineteen through 21. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, when heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God had spoken by the mouth of all of his holy prophets since the world began. Wow. So notice Peter's claiming that there really was a period of restoration, notice in verse 21, that was spoken of by the prophets. Yeah, Bob, you got something. Well, I was just going to uh, suggest between the Matthew passage and the Acts, isn't it pretty clear that there's a restored Israel? Yes, amen. So why would theologians say that Israel's all done with? Great point, yeah. that, that From the apostle himself. And- you wouldn't get that idea reading... <laughs> The Gospels and Acts, would you? Right, right. You know, you've often pointed out, Bob, amillennialism itself is not an idea that you would get from reading the Bible. Well, it's the, the problem with it, I had a public debate with an amillennialist yeah. one time. Um, it's really hard to believe it because if you look at the fulfillment of the first advent, yeah, there were... Uh, I don't know, many, many dozens of detailed prophecies from the Old Testament literally fulfilled right. when Messiah came. So if there was anything shocking that it was more literal than you maybe would have thought. Right, right. Okay? So now we're being told that when it comes to the second advent, all of that goes out the window right. and everything except for that there will be a return of Christ is figurative. Right. There'll be a judgment and a return of Christ, but that's it. Everything else is not going to be literally fulfilled. Right. Well, that is, at the best, you call it special pleading. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But I'd say it's not trying very hard. No, that's right. So the Bible's telling yeah. us there'll be a restored kingdom. Right. And that there is a future for Israel. Amen. And I don't see the evidence that there isn't. Amen. I love what Bob is saying. So the hermeneutics that apply to the first advent certainly must apply to the second advent. We can't change the rules of interpretation. And that's really what the amillennialists did. Think about, you look at the last eight chapters of Ezekiel, when it describes this millennial temple that Dana did a wonderful job telling us about. Well, how do you spiritualize that? How do you spiritualize the height of a doorway? You just make it into anything you want? That's exactly what the amillennialists do. They have to spiritualize it. Well, maybe it means exactly what it says, just as the first Advent passages meant exactly what they said. So, yes, there is a restoration coming of all things, including Israel. Now, one interesting thing about the passage you read, Jim, in Acts, 
Isn't it interesting? <clears throat> Peter says, repent and return. Now you've got a purpose for why. He says, so that your sins may be wiped out. That's understandable. But also he adds, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus. So <clears throat> isn't it interesting? Peter commands a repentance so that God will send Jesus. And so I wrestled with this for a long time. How is it that the sending of Jesus is dependent on something humans do, namely repent? But I think the way we should think of it is, think of a bucket, and there's a full number of God's elect, and when the last one repents, we don't know who that is, but God does. But when the last one repents, it's time for the 70th week of Daniel, and it breaks forth. And so, yes, God is completely sovereign. He knows exactly the day that it's going to occur. Uh, remember, Paul talks about him taking upon himself the sufferings of Christ. And it says he was filling up the sufferings of Christ. Well, one of the big debates on that was, well, wait, was Christ's sufferings not adequate? No, that's not the point. The point is there's a full measure of sufferings the people of God go through. And when it reaches its fulfillment, the Christ comes. And so think about in your daily lives, it's kind of helpful for me to think about as I live and go about my business that the Lord has had me to do, uh, preaching and teaching, and you have your, your different careers and vocations and the different ministries that you have, there's buckets that are being filled up in God's eyes that only he knows. There's the complete filling of the, the t- total amount of suffering God's people will go through. But there's also a filling up of the repentant, those who repent and come to faith. And at some point, those buckets fill up, and you don't know. Maybe it's tonight. Maybe it's tomorrow. We don't know. But at some point, they will be filled in the Lord Jesus' ascent. And so that's how I think we understand man's response and God's sovereignty in that particular passage. Now, for the sake of time, let me continue on here. Notice in red... He says, right, for these words are faithful and true. And this reminds us that God is the only one who is faithful and true. In fact, that description is used of Jesus Christ in Revelation 19.11. That description is used of the rider on the white horse. So let me just remind you, Revelation 19.11, this is Jesus' return at the end of the 70th week. John said, I saw and heaven was opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. So God alone and Jesus alone, because he's God, they're depicted as the ones who are faithful. They're the only true promise keepers. In fact, we're going to come to this in our studies in First and Second Timothy. Remember 2 Timothy 2.13, even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. Why? For he cannot deny himself. God is the one who fulfills all of his promises. Um, how many remember here back in 1990, there was a movement called the Promise Keepers? Everybody remember? Yeah. Uh, Bill McCartney, wasn't that the founder of that, Bob? Was that the founder of the movement? Um, yeah, it was, a, I think, a football coach. One of the problems with it is it really advocated, in kind of a sleight of hand, oath-taking. And I want you to remember that what Jesus said about oath-taking in Matthew chapter 5 is that we should not make oaths, but simply let let our yes be yes and our no be no. Why did Jesus say that? Because he knows the human heart. We are very prone to be promise-breakers. But that's not the way it is with God. That's one of the beautiful things that we see in the book of Revelation is all the promises that we saw in the Old Testament 
that we see reiterated under the new covenant in the book of Revelation, they're being depicted as being fulfilled. So even though men will break their promises, God obviously never does. And I think that's very exciting. Also, a little grammar for those of you that love grammar. Notice in verse 6, it says, Then he said to me, it is done. Literally, the it is done is, it is it's a plural. It should be, they are done. All right? Now, how do we know it's a plural? Because it's, a th- it's actually a third-person plural form of the verb but this verb when he says they are done let me just get my pointer up the they right here would be referring to the making of all things new so the all things being new is done when this passage at the time period this passage is pointing to okay now what's interesting is this verb is also in the perfect tense now the perfect tense remember has to do with an action that is completed but the focus is always on the present-day ramifications that are always with you. Okay, So, for example, if I write something in pencil, I can always erase it. It's not always, the effect isn't always with me. But if I write something in pen, the effect is kind of always with me. I can never get rid of it. Are you with me? That's the significance of the perfect tense. It's writing with a pen. The significance is always with you. So this act of God completing the restoration of all things will always be with the people of God. It can never be taken away. It really is everlasting. By the way, I like the phrase everlasting rather than eternal because technically eternal means no beginning and no end. And only God is eternal. But everlasting, you and I have everlasting life. It came into existence at a point in time and it's without end. That's the nature of saying they are done. These promises will always be with the people of God. You're never going to have to move again. Uh, I like to say that to uh, people who are military families. I've witnessed to a couple of them, and I said, you know, isn't it interesting? Someday when you're in glory, you're not going to have to move anymore. That means a lot to those who are always living out of a U-Haul. You're going to have the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. It will never be taken from you anymore. There will be a permanent home for you. So how exciting is that? Now, whoops, I hit the wrong button there. I'll get my underline. Well, I keep going here. Now, notice here also, Jesus refers to himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And by the way, this is reiterated in Revelation 22, 13. But I want you to think about the significance of that Alpha and the Omega. It's the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And what's being accentuated is God's eternality. He's the eternal one. Now, notice added to the Alpha and Omega, he's also referred to as the beginning and the end. The term beginning there, RK, can literally mean source. So he's the source of all things, but he's also referred to as the end. In Greek, the term telos can mean goal. So he's the source of all things, and he's also the goal to which all things are going to. So when God created the universe knowing that there was going to be sin and rebellion, there was still a goal. And the goal is that he would get all the glory, that he'd be able to conquer sin, he'd overcome it, he'd rectify it, and he'd bring a new creation. And you and I can look back at the sin and the rebellion that he overcame, and he gets all the more glory for it. So not only is he the beginning and the end, think of it as he's really the source, RK, and he's the goal. That's a little nuance to those terms that I think may be important. Now, notice here, he also promises to give 
water to anyone who thirsts. Does everyone see that? I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. That's a reference back to Isaiah 55.1. In fact, turn your Bibles there. It's an important passage to see that this is being fulfilled here. It's an important passage to link back to. Isaiah 55.1. This is a great promise in the prophets that God's people would one day come to the waters of eternal life. Isaiah 55.1. Isaiah says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So notice what's being offered here is contra to the way the world operates. It's free. How many of you have gone to a grocery store as of late and got free food and drinks and beverages just because you're human beings? Uh, You say, hey, I'm made in the image of God. I'd like my free stuff. Well, that's not the way it works in this world. But yeah, yes, Eric. So I just want to make sure too now, because this this passage in Isaiah, in other words, this is a prophecy of eternity future. Yeah, and exactly right. Or is there also a near fulfillment? There is. There's always a near and a far. And so the point would be in Isaiah's day, if the people would repent and turn from trusting in foreign allegiances and honor their covenant that they'd made with Yahweh by believing and obeying, then he would give them this life. But what they did is instead of trusting him, they were concerned always about Syria um, or Ephraim coming against them. And so instead, they would make foreign alliances. They would trust Assyria. They would trust Babylon. They would even trust Egypt. They make alliances, but they wouldn't trust Yahweh. And so it showed that they really had disbelief. And then they acted on it. They also act in rebellious ways, idolatrous ways. And so absolutely, there was real forgiveness and salvation offered to them. But what's interesting is this idea that the waters would be given to the people of God. You see this elsewhere in Isaiah. You see it in Isaiah 32. You see it in Isaiah 44, 3. Um, where it says, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. One of the ways it would be fulfilled in Isaiah is that God would pour out his spirit. And so when the spirit would come, he would bring you to Messiah. But ironically, the Messiah is the one who bestows the spirit. Isaiah 61.1. What does Jesus say of himself when he cites it in the synagogue? The spirit of Yahweh is upon me. See, that's, he's the anointed one. He's anointed with what? It's not just oil. He's anointed with the spirit. He's the one who bestows the spirit. And when the spirit comes upon people, they bring him to the Messiah. And so this is why Jesus, remember to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman? They're talking about water. And he says, well, if you'd come to me, I'd give you water that wells up to eternal life. You remember he says the same thing in John chapter 7 at the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booth was very rich because it depicted one day when people would tabernacle with their God, there'd be waters of life that would flow from Jerusalem. And so it was often known not only as a festival of lights, but also they would have a lot of water involved. And it's during that last day of the feast that Jesus cries out, and he uses this very same phrase, anyone who thirsts, come unto me. And I'll give you waters of life. And he cries that out to Jerusalem on the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, fast forward, we're seeing God tabernacle with his people. Here's the fulfillment of it. Right here. When? The new creation. Jesus is tabernacling with his people. He's fulfilling the Feast of Tabernacles. 
And he offers again, the one who comes unto me indeed has eternal life. Waters that will spring up to life and it's without cost. It's without payment. It's completely by his grace. So think about Babylon is being built by human works. Jerusalem, new creation, built by God's power, his grace alone. That's a big contrast that I think we're intended to see as well. So, very exciting. Now, we see a promise to all believers, and this is a phrase that you'll have recognized from the message given to the seven churches earlier in Revelation. But here in Revelation 21, we see the same promise. Revelation 21, 7 through 8, he continues, he says, He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, I want to remind you that phrase, he who overcomes. Does everyone see that in blue? Let me just read to you what he said earlier to the seven churches. First of all, to Ephesus, he says, to him who overcomes... I will grant what? To eat at the tree of life, which is the paradise in the paradise of God. So how beautiful is that? Here's to Smyrna. He who overcomes will not be hurt to the, by the second death. Uh, here's to Pergamum. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on it, which no one knows. Thyatira, to he who overcomes and who keeps my deeds until the end. To him I will give authority over all the nations. To Sardis, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Philadelphia, to he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. I could go on. Laodicea, to he who overcomes, I will grant him the right to sit down with me on my throne. So look at all of the idea of overcoming. You and I in Scripture as believers are depicted as overcomers of the world. The world is opposed to Christ. It's opposed to us. But through the blood of the Lamb, we overcome. Now, hold on to that idea of overcoming. I'm going to show you at the end of this slide how you and I overcome. We'll talk about it. I'll show you from 1 John 5, 5. But I want to pick up on this, the opposite. Notice in verse 8, let me pull up my pointer again. Does everyone see the term cowardly? Notice the distinction, but for the cowardly... And unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers, idolaters and all liars, they have the part of the second death. So they go to hell. And one of the things that always, I've always wrestled with, that's always bothered me, is what about the cowardly? The reason why that kind of stymied me as I was studying is I've always thought of those who have courage as something that is human. In other words, it's something that a human being can do. So, for example, you see Christians that aren't necessarily the bravest people on the planet. We're not exactly always the toughest people on the planet. So is God saying that, well, wait, the cowardly, if you're cowardly, if you're not the bravest person, you just have no part in the kingdom of God. Well, the term coward here, delos, has to do with those who repudiate Christ and who would rather have a part in the world. And so it really is synonymous with those who shrink back They see what salvation is. They see what the word of God is. But they would rather have the sins of the world. They would rather have their partaking with Antichrist than Christ. They would rather have a part in Babylon 
rather than the new Jerusalem. So really it's synonymous with those who don't have faith. That's what it's really synonymous with. And what's interesting is this is a problem that actually plagued the disciples themselves during Jesus' earthly ministry. Recall, remember there's that great storm that comes up on the Sea of Galilee? And on that storm, you know, Jesus is in the back, he's sleeping. Why? Because he's really human. But then the disciples cry out to him, and the next moment he shows his divinity. He says, peace and be still. And when he stills the sea, now the disciples are even more fearful. They're more fearful of him than they were of the sea. And in a sense, they're being cowardly. It's, it's a real, he says, stop fearing. He commands them to not fear. Why? Because he is their God and he is their Savior. But it is a fearful thing for those in unbelief to be in the presence of God. And that's why in the book of Hebrews, it warns us from shrinking back. Those who shrink back, who are cowardly, who are unbelieving, they want nothing to do with God. That's what's being referred to here. So don't think that the cowardly means you got to be the toughest guy. You're the person who goes out and fights lions. You're the ones, there's a barroom fight, you're the first to step in. Uh, You see some accident, you just jump out, and it's not that. Yeah, it's not that. That's not what it's referring to. The cowardly are those who shrink back in unbelief. They will not believe the promises of God. That's what it's referring to. And that's why it says cowardly and unbelieving. In some sense, it's a hendiatus, using two terms to say the same thing. Now, the abominable, notice it talks about abominable. Those are those who do idolatrous and evil deeds, not only in the 70th week of Daniel, but for all time. Because of their unbelief, they acted out. So remember, you and I believe in Christ, and therefore we act on it. The unbelievers are cowardly and unbelieving, and therefore what do they do? They act on it. That's why they do the abominable things that they do. That's, that's the reason I think the order is as it is. Cowardly and unbelieving are first. Notice murders, immoral persons, sorcerers. Sorcerers are what? Those who try to get secret information. Remember our message last week from 2 Timothy? What are we to rely upon? Secret mysteries or what God has revealed? Notice the divide. You and I as the people of God, we go by what he's revealed. Not so with those who are abominable, those who are shrinking back, cowardly, unbelieving. They go into sorcery and to secret things. Now, they all have part of the second death as well. You can see that. Now, let's go to back to though this idea of overcoming in blue. We see very interestingly in 1 John 5, 5, John is very clear. He says, who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So an overcomer isn't one who says, you know, I've had enough of this world. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to find some religion that I can adhere to that will give me a five, seven step, ten step process to become a better human being. That's not overcoming the world. Overcoming comes through faith alone in the Son. Now, why is that necessary? What I like to do is the core of the gospel to me is the great transaction that occurs at the cross. The moment you and I trust in Jesus, we get something that we have to have that we don't have any of our own, which is his righteousness. Remember in Isaiah 64, all of our righteousness, our righteous deeds are like what? They're like filthy rags. So even the righteous deeds that we've done are not pleasing to God. Why? Because we're imperfect people. And that's why it says in Romans 8, 8, those who are in the flesh outside of Christ, they cannot please God. So the only way to be pleasing to him is to have his righteousness credited to you. 
But that gives you the positive side of the equation. You also have to get rid of something that you can't have, namely your sin debt. You and I really are guilty before God. And that's what Jesus Christ removes at the cross. So it's only through faith alone that you can have imputed righteousness and atonement and therefore be right with God. And that's why the overcomer is one who believes in Jesus. So don't think that this overcoming language insinuates that you have to try harder, uh, do something. It's all about having faith in Jesus. And as a result of your faith, you'll do good works. Bob taught us that uh, two weeks ago. Remember in uh, Ephesians 2.10, we were created in him for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that what? We should walk in them. But what happens before Ephesians 2.10 is Ephesians 2.8-9, where you're saved by faith alone. Okay, so that's an overcomer. An overcomer is one who believes, and yes, they do act on it, because you act on what you really believe. All right, now, that's the end of that section. I want to keep going into the New Jerusalem. Now, as we come into the New Jerusalem, I'm going to call this an introduction, but it's not an introduction to the fact that New Jerusalem exists. We've already seen that. It's going to be an introduction to the description of what it's like. And, oh, boy, this is going to get good. It's going to crescendo as, as we go here. It's so beautiful. And so this is our new home that we're looking forward to. So now, in Revelation 21.9, we see the introduction as to what the New Jerusalem is like. Notice John continues. He says, Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, notice in red where it says, one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls, this links us back to the introduction of Babylon. I'll show you on the screen here. You don't have to turn towards it or to it. Notice Revelation 17.1. You see the same phrase. It says, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and spoke with me saying, come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Okay, so what's interesting is the same phrase is used. You have one that's introducing Babylon, but you have the same phrase in the introduction to the New Jerusalem. Now, why is that important? Because the careful reader will say, hey, there's an intended contrast here. John is writing in such a way where we're to see a contrast between Babylon and New Jerusalem. Again, go back to Isaiah. There's a contrast between the city of man, Babylon, and Jerusalem, the city of God. And now you see it again in the book of Revelation. Now, notice here in the boxes, what is the new Jerusalem referred to as? Well, it's referred to as the wife. But what is Babylon referred to as? The great harlot. See the distinction? That's big, isn't it? The wife is faithful. Not so with the harlot. It's talking about spiritual adultery. The wife is faithful spiritually, to the lamb, not so with the harlot. Okay, and so, and again, it shows us that the new Jerusalem is built by God's grace for his people who are faithful because of his power. But you see, Babylon is Satan's city, not created by God's grace, but by man's deceitful and evil works. And it leads to an unfaithful people. It's foreign, unfaithful people. So there's a great contrast that we're to see. Now, one of the questions that I think we have to wrestle with is notice at the bottom of Revelation 21.9, you see here that the New Jerusalem is referred to as the wife of the Lamb. 
And it made me pause to say, well, wait a minute. How do we reconcile that with the church being the bride of Christ? How do you have New Jerusalem being the bride and the church being the bride at the same time in the same relationship? Well, the reason I think it can be depicted that way is because the people of God will inhabit this New Jerusalem. So in some sense, it's the gift that's given to Jesus, who is the ultimate groom, like a great gift at a wedding. Remember, this wedding imagery is present all over the Bible. In fact, listen to John the Baptist. John the Baptist, you know, he really refers to himself as the best man in a wedding. Jesus is the great groom. The church is the bride. And the father of the groom is the heavenly father. Listen to John the Baptist. This is language you see all over the New Testament. John the Baptist says in John 3.39, he says, He who has the bride, that's the church, is the bridegroom, that's Jesus. But the friend, here's the, the best man, that's John. He says, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. So the bridegroom and this idea of the church, it really does exist in the New Testament. There really is that imagery. So what I would see then is that this idea of the new Jerusalem is like a present that is given to the son. Remember the son when he purchased his church, the bride, it was done through a mohair, a bride price. The bride price was often so so large, this price that was set on the bride, that it would rival the cost of a new home. Well, the bride price for us was what? It was the cost of the son himself. So after that bride price would be paid, Jesus pays it at the cross. Well, then what would happen is typically in a wedding, the groom would go to prepare a place for his bride in his father's house. And so what does Jesus say to us in John 14? In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it weren't so, he tells the bride, I would have told you. Okay, so it's a great promise. So Jesus goes, he's right now seated at the right hand of God, and it's depicted that he's creating a place for us in the father's house. Well, where is the father's house? Well, I think it's the New Jerusalem. And so now Jesus in the New Jerusalem, he's going to come back. We don't know when. Just like in the Jewish wedding, the bride had to be ready at all times. That's the point of the parable in Matthew 25. You see, the the groom would come with a procession, and the bride had no idea when he would come. Well, there's the idea of imminence. We don't know when Jesus is coming either, but we got to be ready. Because he's going to take us to be at the Father's house. But now... The Father's house, the heavenly Jerusalem, is depicted as descending. And so that's why it can be seen as a synecdoche. That is, it really envelops not just the city, but the people of God as well. We are in the new Jerusalem. That is, we are designed for it. So that's why I think it can be rightly depicted as the wife of the Lamb. And there's no contradiction with the church being the wife of the Lamb. So intertwined is the new Jerusalem with the people of God that they can't be separated that would be the idea. Okay, so does that make sense? Are anybody confused on that? Questions, comments, show ideas? Yes, Eric. I just, you know, just to kind of summarize, I, I, what's been going through my mind is, you know, there's this, uh, well, many years ago there was a kind of a, a, a saying, you know, like God has a wonderful plan for you. Well, this is the plan. Yeah, see? exactly. That's right. This is the, he does have a wonderful plan, but it's not all of this other stuff because the plan includes that we will suffer. We will, we will be required to have courage 
you know, we will be tested, all of these things. And people wonder, Christians wonder, why is God letting me go through this and that? And yeah. We're being prepared. He's preparing a people, and, and we're his bride, see? So this is the plan, and if you, yes, if you understand well it comprehensively, it all makes sense. And, and it takes sort of some digging through the scriptures to understand it, which is why this is good that we're studying well, this. Eric including, well said. including the Old Testament. We run into people who, I've run into people, I'm a Christian, but I, I reject the Old Testament. And I, I just think, how can you do that? Right, <laughs> so, right. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Eric. You know, when I, before I was a believer, I became a believer later in life. I was about 19, 20, right in there. And um, I, I remember... When I would hear things like that, God has a plan for your life, I always assumed it also had to do with, well, one day I'm going to be a shortstop for the twins. Or, uh, and I'm sure girls dreamt of being a, a famous movie actress or singer or whatever it is. Um, but you're right. That's not the promise. That's the, the, the great promise for the world. You know, that's the God has a plan for you according to paganism. But it's not the plan in, in, the, in the word. This is the plan, like you said, it is. And you know what's so beautiful is all the pains and anguishes that we have now, they're going to be rectified then. And that's ultimately, to me, the answer to the problem of why does God allow evil? Well, he's going to use it redemptively. How will you and I know how good it is to be in the New Jerusalem unless we suffered here on earth? Um, I told my son once, I said, work hard. You don't know what it is to have a day off unless you work hard. If every day of your life is a day off, how sweet is a day off? It doesn't mean anything. How, how, what does it feel like to be healthy? And how sweet is that? And how, you know, you can't, if you don't have a contrast to say, boy, I was really sick, now I feel really good. Feeling good doesn't mean so much. And so that's all going to be rectified, like you said, and that's the plan. So God isn't some evil ogre, but rather he overcomes and he uses it for our good and his glory. So, yeah, well said. It's the plan. All right, so let me keep moving here. John sees now this new Jerusalem. And notice in verses 10 through 11, it says, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Wow, what a description. Now, we have to wrestle with, it says, In red, he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain. Now, to me, there's really three options. How was John transported? Well, number one, it could be physically, but that seems to be ruled out by the phrase in the spirit. So I think we can rule that out. Number two, it could be in John's spirit. In other words, remember, this is the New American Standard Bible giving you an interpretation by capitalizing the S on spirit. Okay, so when you look in your Greek Bible, there's no capital uh, sigma there. Okay, you have to determine, is this the Holy Spirit? Or is it the spirit of man? Okay, so that's the second option. Maybe John is being moved in his spirit to see these things. The third option is that he is in the sphere of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is allowing him to see such things in a vision. And I would take this as the latter. I think this is a vision that the Holy Spirit is enabling John to see. Now, let me give you some reasons why. First of all, you see almost identical language back in Ezekiel chapter 40. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 2. Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 2. And you'll see that Ezekiel was also brought to a high mountain where he could see the millennial temple. Interestingly enough, now John is being brought to a mountain to see 
not the millennial temple, but the new Jerusalem in the eternal states. But you'll see very similar language. Ezekiel 40, verse 2. Notice how Ezekiel describes his experience. He says, In the visions of God, he brought me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. And on it to the south, there was a structure like a city. So now he's going to see a city as well. So you see the significance. He saw it in a vision. Uh, by the way, in Revelation 1.10, John describes himself as being in the spirit. And the context really shows us that he's seeing a vision. That's why we see, for example, in Revelation 9.17, remember you had that demonic army at the sixth trumpet? And John says, I saw it in a vision. So he's very clear that these things are happening in a vision. So he's not being transported physically. I don't think he's being transported as if there's a separation of his body and spirit. So he's not leaving Patmos. The phrase in the spirit would indicate that he's in the sphere of the spirit. The Holy Spirit is controlling this and enabling him to see that which would be normally impossible. So this is revelation to an apostle by the Spirit. By the way, this is a great way of showing people how inspiration works. Here, John is given very objective revelation as an apostle by the Spirit. Remember, all Scripture is God-breathed. Well, that's exactly what we see. It's being given by God to John. In fact, let me just say to you, Revelation 9, 17, John here says, I saw this in a vision the horses of those who sat on them, the riders at breastplates. Remember, these are the demonic armies that come. There was 200 million of them. It says the color of fire and hackaneth and brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths proceeded fire and smoke and brimstone. So John wasn't transported to see the demonic realm in the last days. He saw it in a vision. I think that that's the best way to understand Revelation 21.10 as well. Now, the other thing I want you to see is notice here in Revelation 17.3, notice the same phrase. And he carried me away in the spirit into, not the mountain, but what? A wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of the blasphemous names and having heads, seven heads and ten horns. So here you see the idea of a contrast once again. Revelation 21 He's going to be shown the New Jerusalem. Revelation 17, he's shown Babylon. Revelation 21, he's brought up to a high mountain to see the New Jerusalem. Revelation 17, he's brought out into the wilderness, always the sign of the demonic, always the sign of that which has to be overcome and opposed. He's brought to the wilderness to see Babylon. Notice also the contrast in the boxes. The New Jerusalem is the holy city. And what is Revelation 17.3? It's the woman. The woman who is the harlot. Remember, Revelation 17.18 defines what that woman is. It says it's the city. So we know that that woman is also a city. And it's Babylon. So again, there's a contrast all the way through Revelation between Babylon and the New Jerusalem. Now, what's very cool here, I want you to see this. Notice when you get to verse 11, notice the description. It says, having the glory of God. The city has the very glory of God. And here, I think glory certainly has to do with splendor. I had given a message, I think, back in Romans 8, where I defined glory as being used three different ways. Much like Bob showed us how world is used in three basic different ways throughout the Bible. Well, oftentimes, glory, number one, 
It has to do with the weightiness or the honor that is due God. He deserves weightiness. That's the term kavoth in Hebrew. It literally means to be considered weighty or to have honor. That's the first way that glory is often used. But second, sometimes it's synonymous with God's holiness. Because he is other, he is set apart, he is different from sin and rebellion of the world, he is glorious in that way. But the third way in which glory is used is it often is used with beauty and visual splendor. And I think that that's exactly how it's being used here. In other words, when the Jerusalem comes down, there's not just a weightiness to it, there's a visual splendor to it. Just as God in his presence, there's always a splendor to him as well. I think that that's how we should understand it. In fact, notice here, the brilliance of the city really comes from the glory of God. In fact, it's described not just as being brilliant, but as being a very crystal clear jasper stone. What's interesting to me about this jasper stone is this is used back in Exodus chapter 28 as a stone that the priest would put in their ephod. Remember the priest for Israel would have to have an ephod that was a vestment that they would wear, and they would have 12 stones in them. And what's very interesting is one of the stones is the jasper stone. And turn your Bibles, if you will, to Ezekiel 28, verse 2. Please turn your Bibles there because I want you to see what the purpose of these stones were. Why in the world would these priests have to wear stones? I mean, can you imagine how ridiculous that is? What if I told you, you know what, I think all of you should put 12 stones in a vest and come every morning. It's a little strange, isn't it? But you're going to see purpose behind it, I think, when we connect it to Revelation. Notice in Exodus 28, verse 2. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean Ezekiel. I I hope I... Turn your Bibles to Exodus. I'll wait for you. Exodus 28, verse 2. Exodus 28, verse 2. Wow, it's really... By the way, you can't look that way, but it's really snowing out now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I can't wait for the new Jerusalem. (laughs) Exodus 28.2. Notice the purpose behind these stones that are given to the priests. He says, you shall make holy garments for Aaron and your brother for glory and for beauty. For glory and for beauty, that's the purpose. So here I want you to think about the glory and the beauty of what the high priest war were really reflective of the glory and beauty of that which is in the new Jerusalem. Remember in Exodus chapter 25, you saw that everything that Moses was to construct was made after a pattern that God showed him on the holy mountain. So in a real sense, the tabernacle on earth was to reflect the one in heaven. The beauty of the vestments that they had, even the jasper stone, was to reflect glory and beauty of the new Jerusalem. So all of it was a diminutive form, a small sampling of the great beauty and glory that was to come in the New Jerusalem. Has anyone noticed how ugly today postmodern art is? Has anyone noticed that? You see, all true art is to reflect beauty and really to give glory to God. That's really the purpose of it. Now, isn't it interesting, all of us can kind of say, you know, that person is a good-looking person, or that's a beautiful sunset. How many ever have said, you know, that is a gorgeous sunset? And someone says, no, that's an ugly sunset. 
I, I say that because some beauty is universally recognized. It's not just all beauties in the eye of the beholder. No, we all can agree that there are some things that are beautiful. That's because we are made in the image of God, rational beings who can understand beauty because it reflects the nature of our creator. That's the purpose of it. But what happens in our generation is if you reject God and you become postmodern, then you take a rusty bumper and you stick it in the ground, you put lipstick on it and dip it in cat urine, and you say, well, isn't that beautiful? And everyone has to pretend, that's beautiful, way to go. And I'm like, whew. Right? Why? Because they rejected God. They rejected the source of all beauty and glory and honor. They rejected him and his glory. So that's why today, yeah, Bob. Well, uh, that's exactly right. But yeah. we have to know what God ordained for us now. Amen. Uh, as you're saying that, I'm thinking also, though, that we have to wait for this. Yes. Because we live in a fallen world. Yes, amen. And as we've been doing radio, going through the book of Hebrews, yeah. and I'm editing those, so I have to listen to them again, which I'm glad to do. Right. One of the things that was tempting to the Hebrew Christians was that if they went back to the temple, it was still operating. Yes. They could have that beauty. Right, rather than Christ. The smells and the bells and the priestly garments and all that. But they couldn't see Christ. Amen. Because he's in heaven. Right. And he had to worship him by faith, believing his promises. These things will happen. Yes, well said. But right now, we don't have that. Right. And so they were tempted to go back to something that God had ordained previously. Yes. But not now. Right. Because Christ died for sins once for all. Yeah. So there's there's a real issue about what God ordained. And I was just thinking about Eve's temptation to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it's beautiful. She said it was a delight to the eye. Yeah, it was beautiful to the eye. So the reason I say that, I agree with you. A lot of this stuff is just they're trying to be ugly. Right. call it pretty to be bizarre. Right. But what Christians need to know is what God ordained yeah. and what he hasn't. Amen. What's forbidden and what isn't. And um, we can create things. Now, doing the radio on Hebrews, yeah. we were watching one of these uh, uh, conservative talk shows, and somebody had gone yeah. on a trip and been in Spain and showed a picture of a cathedral. with must There must have been... A, 500 icons, yeah, golds, just huge, way up. The whole wall was gold statues of this, that, saints, and yeah. who knows what. As high as you could see. They're trying to create fake transcendence. Right, right. Because they don't believe the promises of God. Yeah. And they're wanting something like the Hebrews had right. in Jerusalem, and they're going to create it now because they won't wait because they don't believe in Christ. Yeah. So really the issue is what has God ordained right. and what hasn't he? Amen. Amen. It, you know, it reminds me of, um, you were out at, remember that uh, you were giving a message out west and you were at that beautiful church that overlooked that valley and they asked you, expecting you to say, wow, this is beautiful, this is great. And you, you said to them something to the effect, well, I think you just substituted 
the natural revelation for the divine revelation. Isn't that what you said to them? Because they were this beautiful picture class window in their church. Well, nobody could focus on the word of God being preached. Oh, yeah, it was poorly designed. It was poorly designed because uh, they all Where the was light, that, Bob? The light was coming through. Yeah. And all of the outside, all the natural. But the preacher in a pulpit, you couldn't even see. Yeah. Because the light right. was blinding you from where, all where, the stuff. Where was that? Uh, it was some beautiful like, city valley. It was in uh, Cincinnati in the fall, but it was very, very nice. Oh, that's where it was. But okay. I thought it was a poorly outlast. designed architecture. Okay. Yeah. Now, the fact is, biblical Christianity doesn't need anything but the promises of God Amen. and the word of God and elders and the, and the word taught. Right, exactly. I'm not saying it's a sin to have a building. No, no, no. Or right. to have nice architecture. But if we don't have it, we have to gather in some basement somewhere. Yeah. God doesn't leave us. Did you see that pastor just came back from Turkey? Yeah, praise God. Yeah. He, he loves the Lord. Yeah. Hallelujah. Yeah. He had nothing for two years, but God didn't leave him. Amen. Well said. No, Bob, you're exactly right. So we don't want to ever substitute anything in the natural revelation for the divine revelation. We might not see beauty. The pastor sure did. He was in his cell. We're to believe the promises of God. My only purpose here is to show that in Exodus 22, these vestments and everything was created for glory and for beauty. And so there really is a glory and a beauty that is a foreshadowing of what is to come. But an ugly and postmodern generation, they'll reject that. Um, You know, today, if you go to colleges, they'll reject Mozart and Beethoven because they're Marxists. They'll say, well, that's not as beautiful as... Um, it was something called Indian gambling music. And I listened to Indian gambling music, and that's supposed to be just as beautiful as Beethoven's... And I'm not a classical music guy, but I listened to gambling music. It, it sounds like something I could do on a recorder when I was in second grade. It's not pretty, but that's what's happening in our postmodern generation. Beauty is being rejected. And I think, again, this beauty here that we see is ultimately going to be seen in the new creation, the one that was foreshadowed at the tabernacle in the wilderness. And so if you uh, think it's beautiful now in the fallen creation, just think about what the new heavens, new earth, and new Jerusalem are going to look like. Okay, now we come to further descriptions here. we got about five minutes. We can get through this, I think, this part. Revelation 21, 12, it talks about these 12 gates. It said it had a great and high wall and 12 gates and had the gates, and excuse me, and at the gates 12 angels and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Now it's interesting to me here where it talks about this great high wall. One of the questions is, well, why a wall? After all, there's no enemies to be protected from. They're in the lake of fire. But I think the wall perhaps is there, and again, I'm just surmising, because it really does symbolize the security that God's people have. It certainly isn't going to protect us from any real evil or real enemies, but in a sense, there's a beauty probably to the structure, and there really is a sense and a symbolism of security that they come from. Now, interesting to note, notice where it says 12 gates. They're literally pulone. They're 12 gate towers. So they're not just gates in the sense... Um, like a, a gate to a Minnesotan is a metal fence that you open up. You get a little sliding thing, you open it up so your dog can go in and out of your fenced yard. But it's not also a gate like at the Wittenberg, you know, the 95 Thesis were put on. It's more of a gate like you'd see 
in the ancient Near East where you'd have a big tower and you'd have a fortification. That's the type of gate that's being depicted there. So it's going to be a beautiful structure. And again, I think it really symbolizes the security that God's people have eternally. Also notice there's 12 angels at the gates. Why? I don't know. (laughs) Perhaps, again, it's a sense of security. I just don't know why they're there. But they're there. And what's so neat is as it's being described to us, it's really bold, isn't it? It's just, well, it's, it's this, it looks like this, and there's this. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not short on detail. The description of the New Jerusalem is given in such a way where it sounds like someone's really seen it. It's not just pie-in-the-sky thinking. This thing exists. As we speak, Jesus made a promise in John 14 that he will prepare a place for us in his Father's house. And I think that's the New Jerusalem that will come down. And so this is going to be glorious. It's going to be beautiful. Now, notice the name of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel are going to be written on it. Now, some have asked, I know, throughout the years, well, which tribes? And I just want to let you know that there are, sometimes there are different, there are basically three different lists of the tribes of Israel. And I just want to unpack this a little bit for you as to why. Do you remember even though Levi, in fact, let me just put up the reference here to Genesis 35:22. Notice it says it came about while Israel was dwelling in the land that Reuben went and lay with Abilah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now there were 12 sons of Jacob. So these 12 sons end up being the 12 tribes, but there's different listings. So, for example, in Genesis, later on in verse, or chapter 35, you'll see that Levi is one of the tribes. But after God tabernacles with them, and after Moses comes on the scene, what you see is that Levi is taken out. Why? Because the Levites are the firstborn. They're priests to God and they're given no land possession. Okay? Well, remember, Joseph is also given a double portion to his sons. Remember Ephraim and Manasseh? Well, they're given a double portion, so he's taken out and they're put in. Okay? So the point is you have three different lists of the tribes of Israel. What I would do is I would go back to Revelation chapter 7, And I would go according to that list. And that's probably the names of the tribes that are listed. Levi, by the way, is interestingly put back in. And one of the reasons I think Levi is in, and by the way, Dan is taken out, is Levi, remember there were to be priests, and that's why they were excluded from the land promise? Well, one reason perhaps they're back in the land promise list is because you and I are all priests to God. They're not not unique. We have a priesthood of every believer. But anyway, my, just by pointing this out is there's different lists of different tribes. Don't despair. There's reasons for it. Uh, Joseph is given a double portion. Dan was excluded at one point because of their sin. So there's reasons. But again, we're not told which tribes. I would assume it's the same list that you see in Revelation chapter 7. That's how I would understand it. Now, let's keep moving. We talk about the foundation stones. We can finish this up here. Revelation 21, verses 13 through 14 It says there were three gates on the east and three gates on the north and three gates on the south and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So here now you had the 12 tribes recognized with the gates. Well now on the foundation stones you have the 12 apostles who are the very spokesmen for Jesus Christ. Okay. Now what's interesting is in Ephesians 2.20 and Bob will be coming to this the church is depicted as having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So, yeah, Levan. Whoops, I'm sorry. We'll get the microphone to you. I just um, want to confirm the 12 apostles. Now, does that include Paul as the 12th one? And Matthias does not, he's not included. I, as... I don't know. I, okay. I, I don't know. Yeah, Bob, you have any thoughts on that? Uh, without just allegorizing. Yeah. Because you mentioned that even when it comes to the Old Testament, there were different lists. Yeah. Isn't the number 12 have a significance beyond just the names of persons? It does. Yeah. It, it signifies God's rule and. Yeah. The fullness. Fullness of God's yeah, rule. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the Bible doesn't seem to be as worried about the exact names of who's in it yeah. as we are. Right, right. I'm just observing. Yeah, exactly, yeah, that's because right. Because we wonder, well, is it Paul, is it Matthias? That's a good question. Is right, it, yeah, it's a very good question. Is it Levi, Dan? Yep. What about Joseph's two sons? Right. What about this? What about that? Right. But what seems to stay the same is 12. Exactly. And maybe it, it's just telling us God's ordained yeah. foundation is laid and right. it's correct. Yeah. And we can trust that it, which one is in or out right. doesn't probably influence our faith as far as that, that this is what God's going to do. Yeah, very well said. And even after uh, Judas dies, you can still refer to the disciples as the twelve. It almost is synonymous with the apostles. So, yeah, I don't know the answer to it. I don't know yeah, I which don't name either. is there. And, which, and we're not given the information, so I don't know. But it's a very interesting question. And that's one of the debates as to, is Matthias really an apostle? And how do we understand that Acts chapter 1? Um, it's before Pentecost. is because Peter's confused before the Spirit comes. Um, when he says that it is necessary, is that really a divine necessity? There's a lot of issues there. Um, and I, I can't tell you what the right answer is. But what we can affirm is that both the 12 tribes of the Old Covenant and the 12 apostles, they're really those who represent God, and they are being honored in the New Jerusalem. One interesting fact here in Ephesians 2.20, Bob will come to this, is remember the church here in this passage is built on the apostles and prophets. The apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. Some have concluded, well, that means that there's no Israel, because here in the New Jerusalem, you have the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem are the apostles, therefore it's only the church Israel's done. That's not a valid inference. We've seen way too much evidence that Israel is in fact part of the people of God. The real truth is that you and I were grafted into their promises. Okay, through what? The apostolic word. And so I would just see this as to say, yes, the, the apostles are going to be honored in the New Jerusalem. And to go any further than that is to really go beyond what Scripture has revealed. Yes. Um, maybe this fits with the idea that there will be a, a real city. Um, I was just thinking when you were talking earlier um, about God having um, a hand in in the, we think it, of the physical parts like the walls, etc. But yeah. it brought to mind Hebrews 11, 9, and 10 about Abraham living um, in the land as an alien yeah. by faith. But then verse 10, it says, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose Amen. architect and builder is God. Amen. And that was, yeah, that yeah. was kind Amen. of made right me excited there. to look forward to yeah exactly oh, yeah, yeah. that's right i guess i missed it back then but no no yeah. that's okay yeah. you're exactly right that's <laughs> the passage she's referring to and that just shows by the way that was the, that was the whole point of my laying all that out was to show you this new jerusalem exists now 
They're always, um, the Messiah is coming from the heavenly Zion. Well, which Zion? Well, the one in, in, in heaven, the one that's prepared. So you're exactly right. This has always been the hope of the people of God is to look for this city who's being created by God. So again, let's just wrap up with Christie. It's a very fitting end. People are going to either live for Babylon or you're going to live for the new Jerusalem. Living for Babylon means you reject Christ and you live for the fleeting pleasures of all you can get here and now. But if you'll trust in Christ and his promises and be obedient to him, you're living for the new Jerusalem. That's what this is really all about. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for these words that you've given us so that we may persevere, that we may see your beauty, your glory, that we may experience all the splendors of the new creation and the new Jerusalem. We thank you for these promises. I pray that you'd help us to persevere in Jesus' name. Amen.